welcome back for another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, producers, directors, writers, cinematographers, editors, production designers, uh, actors, composers, costume designers, sound mixers, sound editors, uh, you name it, we talked to them all. Last week, we had a wonderful author on with us, uh, Ed, Edward Savio. Edward is he's actually going to be back with us later this summer, sometime in July, so we can continue discussions about his writing process and uh, adapting things and doing audiobooks. So, but today, uh, today is a good one, folks. Dances with Films starts in Hollywood at the Chinese Theater Complex this Thursday, June 22nd, and it runs through July 2nd. And you know, every year I always manage to scrape up a few uh, filmmakers who have films that will be screening at DWF. And this year is no different. I've seen about eight, eight films uh, filmmakers or their reps have reached out to me about and we've got two of those filmmakers today. The first one you're going to hear from, who's already on hold, is Dimitri Gelfand, more commonly just known as Dimitri, with his short film, Hedgehog. It is an amazing film, and I'm going to let him tell you about it in a moment. Um, I, I just have the greatest admiration for Dimitri. I got to meet him, and we spoke at great length a few years ago for his first feature narrative uh my true fairy tale he knows how to make a film feel real he speaks to all the senses uh with the exception of smell and if we ever get movie smell-o-vision you know i'm sure that dimitri will find a way to incorporate that into his filmmaking he utilizes sight and sound perfectly uh then at the midpoint of the show, another Dances with Films filmmaker is with us. Writer, director, cinematographer, and editor. He did it all for this film called Unfix. Graham Streeter is going to be joining us. Very excited to speak with Graham about Unfix that deals with issues of conversion therapy. Um very fascinating film that it's a narrative um some excellent acting excellent performances but it's the script and the subject matter because it really comes down to secrets and secrets about so many things for four different individuals so i can't wait to speak with graham at the midpoint but right now i'm so excited Welcome, 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 Dimitri. Hello, hello. How are you? I am so happy to speak with you again. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this is an absolute pleasure and privilege, Dimitri. Um, you know how much I love your work as a filmmaker. My true fairy tale was just magical. Uh, and you make films, you speak from your heart when you make films and that's now very very clear with hedgehog i was 
I have to tell you, I'm enchanted with your approach in Hedgehog and what you have done to tell, to say so much in 17 minutes' time. Uh, your visuals are beautiful. Your sound design is impeccable. And your casting, oh my goodness. The wonderful, wonderful Emma Pearson, who plays this little six-year-old girl, Nina, is she steals your heart. And you see what is unfolding, the microcosm of war in the Ukraine. You see it unfold through her innocent eyes. Um, it, this is, it's an amazing little film. An amazing little film, Dimitri. Uh, as we Thank have, you. as poor Nina is sent to her grandmother's village to stay with her grandmother because her parents are Ukrainian and they are going off to fight. But while Nina is with her grandmother, she discovers a wounded Russian soldier that her grandmother is caring for and hiding in her barn. And it's the purity that Nina looks at the situation and looks at this man and that he looks at her. And we see humanity between two people who should be at odds. Just remarkable. Remarkable. You say so much in such a short span of time. Just amazing, Dimitri. Thank you. Thank you very much for your kind words. Where did, what inspired this film for you? Because I know you defected from Russia some 30-odd years ago, uh, and you've been here in the United States. So I'm curious, what was it? that inspired you to tell this story? Well, there's, um, there, there are two things, actually, that happened, and they kind of happened one after another um, immediately. Um, I um, did immigrate to the United States um, when I was nearly 15 years old uh, from what's known today as Belarus. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was USSR. And so um, once the conflict transpired a little over a year ago, I wound up being in a very odd position because I still have friends and family in both Russia and Ukraine, Mm -hmm. while I'm from Belarus because Belarus is right in the middle. (laughs) And uh, overnight... I found these people not speaking to each other, in fact, hating each other. And it was very difficult to understand why this was happening, even though we knew that there was an aggressor that went into Ukraine and started this incredibly awful conflict. Right after that, Vladimir Zelensky, who is the president of Ukraine, made an incredibly humane speech. I think it must have been two weeks into the conflict. In Russian language, actually, he pleaded to the soldiers, the Russian soldiers, to surrender, to take a high road, and to give themselves up 
and they would be treated like human beings. That in concert with what happened, um, I guess it all kind of algorithmically <laughs> went into my head and this story came out and, and I wanted to tell the story in a very, because it's a very delicate subject. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tell it in a very delicate way. And I thought that from a voice of a six-year-old girl, that would do the the justice to it. You, I mean, a very wise, wise choice, uh, a wise uh, inspiration that you had to tell it from the eyes of a six-year-old little girl. Um, you know, they always say, you know, out of the mouths of babes and children, they see things with a clarity that adults don't. And that is that shines through in Hedgehog. Um, just the story itself. And you have very little dialogue. Very little dialogue. It's very it's a very observational um, film, Dimitri, and I found that really interesting. There are no words when Nina's parents leave her with, with her grandmother. Hugs, kisses, something in the background, and they go off to fight for the Ukraine. Not much is said between grandmother and Nina. Um, she draws sunny, bright pictures of a happy family for what her life was and obviously what she wants it to be again. And at the same time, you then are giving us sound, the beautiful sound of nature and the wind moving the branches of the trees of the forested area where the grandmother lives. But in the background, we can hear shelling, we can hear bombs faintly. But your sound design is so impeccably done. You set up this beautiful, beautiful contrast juxtaposition of the beauty and happiness of life and the war that is ever present in the background and just exquisitely designed Dimitri I you know I was so fortunate from um, A to Z from um, the production of this film to the post-production of this film it was almost like the whole world conspired to have this film happen very quickly because I wrote the script in five days two weeks right after the conflict and then within six um, between six to seven weeks we were already in um, pre-production and uh, two weeks from there we were already shooting wow that is very quick (laughs) you're not kidding that is very quick. Wow. Wow. Where... And, and, and of course, you know, and especially indie filmmaking requires a village, a mountain sometimes to yeah. make this happen. And um, a dear friend, um, Dave Messick with Unseen Productions at Maryland, at Ocean City, Maryland, um, came on board and uh, they financed this film very very quickly the whole ocean city berlin maryland they all stood behind the film the entire community um and then magic 
slowly, one by one, started to happen. We got on board a beautiful production designer, Deidre Patero. We um, got on board a terrific um, uh, director of photography, Mark David, mm-hmm. um, who flew in, who's a very good friend and an amazing cinematographer who flew in from Los Angeles. And, um, uh, of course, the production design, uh, the um, sound design, William Tabernow, um an incredible, incredible, as you put it, um, sound design with every nuance, every detail. Oh. Um, Ali uh, Helmwen, who wrote the score, and wonderful um, uh, Chris Witt, who edited the film. You know, Chris Witt, I'm familiar with Chris's work, and I'm a big fan of his. But the, the things I've seen Chris do, he's done a lot of comedy. Um, this is far from comedy. But so I didn't know what quite what to expect with this film. And I have to tell you, his editing is perfection with the shot with holding on frames. And this also is due to Mark David and, and Mark's lensing on this. But the way that Chris holds and lets us observe and feel more or less what Nina is feeling without saying anything. And that requires holding on a, on a shot. Um, so you don't want to rush it. Nothing in here is rushed. Um, it's very easygoing. But you feel tension in the background. And that's because of the sound design where we are reminded of the war in the distance from this village. Of course, then it also gets closer. It gets louder during the 17 minutes. Um, and you can see the look on Nina's face. The grandmother, not so much, because she has lived through much turmoil in that region over the course of her lifetime. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. I'm. It's When you've lived through that kind of turmoil, Russia, Germany... Poland, all of the battles, when you get to be the grandmother's age, you've seen it all, and you just kind of take it in stride, and you do what you have to do and what you think is right. And in this case, what she thought was right was to take in this soldier and treat his wounds and keep him hidden uh, without saying a word. Uh, And precisely, that's why... um, we want it to be very, very subtle. The less dialogue, the better, allowing the audience almost to feel that tension, mm-hmm. to be in that moment, to hear the breath of wind, mm-hmm. to hear one chord. And, of course, Emma Pearson, as you put it, she just <sighs> delivered beautifully. Where did you find Emma to play Nina? She is a fine, yeah. Dimitri. You know, it, again, the world conspired to make this happen when uh, we actually, on the, on the drive from New York to Maryland, we started doing casting. And um, I wanted somebody who spoke fluent Russian and Ukrainian, obviously. And uh, I saw a picture of uh, Emma and I saw her eyes, mm-hmm. and those eyes spoke to me so much. Yeah. 
And um, I knew that those eyes would speak to the audience. I was just hoping when audition would happen, uh, we would be able to work together. And it just magically happened. Wow. But your her eyes, are they just suck you in. You are spellbound by her eyes. And this is one of the things I really appreciate about Mark's cinematography is the way that the camera is on her face. And there are moments where it goes in even tighter. So we are really, we are part of the pools within her eye of what she's seeing. And it, it's just, you cannot look away from this little girl. You can't do it. Um, she gets us hook, line, and sinker from the very first time she gets out of the car when she's dropped off at her grandmother's house. Um, you are invested in Nina. And it's because, it's because of Emma. Just amazing casting with her. Thank you. She, she's an absolute, absolute pro. It was such a pleasure to work with her. You're going to have to work with her again. Would love to. Would love to. <laughs> yeah. Now, the production design of this, I have to commend you and your production designer. The grandmother's house is just so beautifully apportioned. We feel the ages that she has lived through. We feel the decades. We see it with the sparse things in the house, but a lot of handmade little things. If you look at the shelves in the corner, um, even the little table that Nina sits at under the window with all kinds of colored pencils in a, in a little can. Um, everything, it's very, it's lived in. Grandmother has had it for many, many, probably her entire life. For all we know, that bed that Nina's sleeping in was the original bed that the grandmother slept in as a little girl. Um, just a beautiful job with the production design to steep us in that moment. And then for lighting, no electricity. So everything, it's, you know, it's storm candles. It's hurricane lamps which are so old school, um, but still very effective when you have no electricity. Correct. Uh, just, and the beautiful glow that Mark got with the lighting in those hurricane lamps, almost like a, like a pale rose at times, like a golden, like a rose gold patina that I thought yes. was really yeah. interesting and beautiful. We, we tried um, playing a little bit with the moonlight um, mode uh, because a lot of it is shot at night. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, it, it certainly, again, just the whole team coming together and just making this happen in, um, in three, three and a half days. And Deidre, the production designer, she uh, put this all together. She came in about three days before the shoot, and she put this all together in three days. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, she's um, absolute, um, absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Wow. Now, did you? where did you shoot this in Maryland? 
we shot this in Ocean City, Maryland, mm-hmm. um, actually in a town called Berlin. I know Ocean City. I have. I do not know Berlin, but boy, it's awfully pretty looking there. It's it's actually shot in um, Mariners Country Downs. It's a property. It's a property of a gentleman who owns four hundred acres of land. It's in a forest, and actually, um, we saw a film that was shot in there, and we loved the location so much. And of course, it's how do you recreate Ukraine? in the united states and um it was um you know knowing a little bit of what former soviet villages would look like Mm -hmm. helped me a little bit to see that we could probably transform this into somewhat what ukrainian little hut may look like Mm -hmm. Uh, it just it yells out old world to me the minute I That's saw exactly. it, it, it just, I can, that reminded me, I have pictures from Goslar uh, in the Harz Mountains in Germany of my great-grandmother in a, in a small little, little home up in the Harz Mountains that was taken in the late 1800s. And this very much, the minute I saw this, it reminded me of that, the simplicity, the warmth. Um, the familial nature of it. And I, I just think it's an amazing job that you did you. that you did with it. Now talk to me about Ali's score because that's that's something really special in this film. Well, um, Ali, uh, it, the, the way I, I, I normally do try to do a process when I think of making a film, I start to get people involved very early, early before we even start shooting Mm -hmm. so that we have some type of temp music that we could use uh, and then turn it possibly into the real score. And um, when I contacted Ali um, and I sent him the script, uh, he loved the script so much. um, He said, I want to be part of it regardless of what it is i want to be part of it can you um tell me what you're looking for and i just told them one word i said i want the score to be invisible and precisely the whole score is really just three four notes mm-hmm. that resonate hopefully resonate with the audiences where it hits you just right where it needs to be. And Ali said, you know what? He even took it a step further. He said, I'm going to do a live scoring session for you. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. wow, Dimitri. Wow. And that's something really, a live scoring session, especially most people wouldn't think of that on a short film. Um, a lot of people don't think a, a lot of people don't think of it for a feature film, let alone a short film. But I love that idea of silence, um, and the fact that we really Ali concentrates on primarily just some uh, some single note, single note that's 
it kind of haunts us as an undercurrent. It never overpowers. And then here again, this plays in with your sound design. With the nuance and the minutia that we hear. You know, we hear Nina with her coloring pencils and she lays one down. We hear that the sound of the pencil, the wooden pencil on that little wooden table that she has. We hear the sounds out once we see the Russian soldier. We hear the sounds in the barn. We hear the bounce of Nina's ball. But nothing steps on anything else. And it's just so beautiful. Because that's what gives us the innocence and the, the kindness, the softness and the beauty that is encountered by the bombing in the distance. And it's just, and the score plays right in with that. Indeed. It just, it just amazing. Now, what was the most challenging aspect of getting this film made and getting it out there on the festival circuit now? You know, I guess um, I'm just going to go out and say it. I thought, um, I thought it would be controversial. And, you know, people have to really see this to decide for themselves. I don't see it. Um, certainly my, my crew and a lot of, um, of pretty big festivals did not see this as being controversial. But um, perhaps it can be looked at as a controversial um, piece of work given the circumstances of what happens in the film. Mm-hmm. I, you know, you can um, see both sides. You can understand both sides. Anybody that has paid attention to the news for the past year, and even throughout history, you know, such as East Germans and West Germans, all of a sudden there was a wall between them. You know, one day, I know my grandmother, her best friend, uh, when she was a girl, when they grew up after the war, her best friend ended up on the east side of the wall in Germany. And my grandmother never saw her again, I think, for, oh my gosh, about 60 years, I think. Um, but anybody that has paid attention to history can see the controversy here. It's what do you do? Do you be human? Do you have political loyalties, country loyalties? Where, you know, how do you handle it? The grandmother chose her avenue. And to do it quietly, with dignity and compassion. And as we see, without giving anything away, that is exactly what Nina does. Well, that's exactly right. This film has nothing to do with the war. Yes. And let's not uh, dispute the fact that this, the, the ramifications of this conflict is going to probably, unfortunately, go on for generations. Yeah. And a lot of Ukrainian people have all the right to hate uh, Russians for what they have done. But what happens, and you know, this film is... What happens to us as human beings when we are forced with this situation that's presented in a film? What choice do we take 
when faced with the enemy. Mm-hmm. And whatever happened to the fact that we have an obligation to be human to each other. Mm-hmm. It comes down to having a conscience and a moral compass. Exactly. And you show us that here so beautifully, Dimitri. Um, Thank you. And the fact that there's a little girl, a six-year-old, and she judges and decides for herself. I love, I love where she asks. She asks her grandmother. Her grandmother answer her, never answers her. Is he bad? She asks the soldier when she finds him in the barn, you know, are you bad? He doesn't even know how to answer it. And that's, that's the big quandary that we face as people, as a people. Um, and, you, and what war does to them. Yes. And, uh, you know, when people see this at Dances with Films and hopefully at other festivals after that, when they see this, they're going to be grabbing their throats and their hearts with what happens at the end of this film. And we aren't going to say what it is, but I mean, it just they will be, their jaws are going to drop and their heart will be in their throats. Well, I, I hope so. I hope it really speaks to them. Oh, Dimitri, if this doesn't speak to people, they have no heart, period, period. But now everybody can see Hedgehog on June 26th at Dances with Films. You can get tickets in advance. You don't have to get a festival pass. They can buy individual tickets to come because this is going to be part of a shorts um, a shorts uh, program. So they'll get to see a bunch of shorts along with yours in that particular time slot. And I can't encourage people enough. If you are in the Los Angeles area, you know, the festival itself, it's a good festival. Come to the festival. But definitely, if you have to decide what you're going to see, this is a film. It is it is a must-see film, uh, for my money. It's a must-see film, Dimitri. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Oh, Dimitri, this has been so lovely, getting to chat with you again and having you back on the show. Always. I'm so glad. Thank you so, so much, Debbie, for having me again. I'm so happy you reached out to me about the film. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy you responded. (laughs) I will always respond to you, Dimitri, always. Do you have anything else you're working on now? Uh, Well, um, Life of an Independent Filmmaker, several projects in the pipeline, but uh, uh, working on a few um, shows that... uh, we're trying to put together and um, a couple of other projects that are coming up. Yeah. Ah, well, make sure you let me know when they're done. 100%. <laughs> oh, Dimitri. Thank you so, so much. And I still don't know if I can make it on the 26th, but I'm going to try so I can come and well, see you. Where, where, where we would love to see you. Oh, Dimitri, thank you so much. And you have a wonderful week as you gear up for Dances with Films. 
Thank you so much. Sending you a big hug. Oh, right back at you, Dimitri. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dimitri, is, he is a very special person. I, I have to tell you all that. Um, and now we're going to switch gears. And now we have, uh, this is just, I'm very excited. Again, uh, a, an award-winning filmmaker, Graham Streeter, is with us. Hey, Graham. Hey there, how you doing? Well, I'm doing fine, especially since you're on the line with me. Uh, and we're ta- we're talking dances with films for unfix. What a film. I got to tell you, I didn't know what to expect with this film. And I thought, okay, it might be like some of the other films I've seen that circle around conversion therapy or address conversion therapy and it was going to be preachy in your face this is not this is such a fascinating character study of actually of four people um and secrets yes we you have the issues surrounding conversion therapy and the effects that 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 can have on somebody long into their life and their identity. But you also bring in this whole idea of secrets. And all four of our main players, they all have secrets. And you set this during the during COVID, during the lockdown, with these four people in a very small apartment or house apartment together. And you know, sooner or later, secrets are going to come out, but they're also going to eat away at every single person. And boy, boy, do we see that unfold here. Amazing. Amazing, Graham. Um, Thank you so much. Wow. What an honor. I just, you know, I was riveted watching this because as we have, once, as we're slowly getting all, uh, Ari's story, who his father subjected him to conversion therapy unnecessarily, really, yeah, um, mm-hmm. at age 11. But then, because of secrets, because of the past, because of being in, you know, locked up, in lockdown, um, you know, it makes the mind spin. And you get strangers introduced. And you're at a crossroads after 17 years with the same woman, but you still won't commit and you still won't marry her. And slowly things start coming out. And you give us these great flashbacks um, that are, are quick, they're short, till we get to the third act and we get a much bigger understanding of what Ari went through as a child. And then we have 17-year girlfriend, Ava, uh, who wants to get yep. married, but Ari won't commit. So <laughs> what's what's to do? Uh, then we have these two strangers who appear. John, who ends up in a youth hostel. He has his belongings stolen. He was apparently going to travel or had no money, needed money. Uh, Max is already in the in the hostel, and he looks like a street kid. The two of them connect. 
Then they end up renting space from Ari and Ava. And then it, we just go down the rabbit hole. And it's a, it's a deep rabbit hole that you created. <laughs> boy, oh boy, Graham. <laughs> did, you, did you expect any of it? Did you suspect anything along the way? I, I suspected nothing about Max. Nothing. Ah, great. John, right away. I, the, John, I really thought there was a connection there. And great. I thought, but I thought the connection was only with Ava. But it took a while to get to that point. It was like at the end of the right. first act, starting into the second act. Um, Ari, that finally... As you know, we're, we get to the third act, and then I start wondering, um, what's the deal here? But right. boy, that rabbit hole, Graham, how in the, the world, <laughs> how did you craft this? Because you essentially, you've got four stories going on here, all of which are intersecting at various points until this very explosive, explosive climax in the third act that just yeah. blew me away <laughs> you know you just kind of you have to throw pasta at the wall until it makes sense and you just keep on going at it and I think the key for me is just not to rush when you're writing a story and just try to figure out how how the story will kind of like come alive and then ultimately will unfold for you but there's a lot of architecture to get to that last moment you know those, those last that last third act to really to roll out um, well, but then you, you reverse engineer the story. You come back and you rebuild it and you rebuild it until it makes sense. And but with an ending in mind, always, you know. I I just how what was the impetus for this film for this story? Um, you know, Debbie. Every time I jump into a new film, I try to like ask myself, what do I not know? Um, as a filmmaker, you know, you spend years on a project sometimes, and the topic's got to be something that you're going to grow with personally as a filmmaker as well. Instead of writing what you know, I like to dive into things I don't know. And then that, I mean, I'm, I'm a gay male, married, you know, from the product of, you know, uh, you know the 90s possibly, but I don't, um, I didn't have that journey. I, I felt quite privileged as a, as a born in California, liberal state, and all. I had the support that I needed. Never felt that kind of rejection or shame or hatred that uh, some kids today, and especially back then and historically way back, felt growing up in a society where it would be uh, so shameful that people would try to redirect your own personality into a different person in order to make you acceptable in society. So that was a very fascinating area. And I also knew that um, there is a generation that has zero concept of the kind of strifes that those kind of people went through. And so my first initial goal was to see if I can put a young person and a person not so young, but maybe 15, 20, 18 years later, one quick generation later and show how vastly different their experiences were in the same society when it comes to sexual identity or uh, ability to choose what you want to do in life and who you want to be. 
so that's why I, that kind of built that foursome uh, based on that premise. And mm-hmm. then uh, conversion therapy um, was a topic that I felt like has been told a million times over. Like you said, you know, you figure, okay, I'm going to go probably down this, uh, you know, after school special preachy kind of film. How can we tell it from a different angle so that new people with fresh eyes can see it and actually feel like, hey, this could happen to me. This could be my story. Uh, it's not just about gay people. It's about anyone trying to navigate through life and make their own decisions about who they are and what their authentic self is mm-hmm. and not being given that opportunity or being manipulated by others who believe something different than you and calling it calling it a mental disorder, shame, you know, God forbidden and all those things and divisively um, changing you and destroying you in the process. Well, you've got some really... One of the scenes in particular, and I'm curious um, if you did what your research was like going into conversion therapy, because one, where this where Ari is, as a young boy is 11 years old, uh, it's it's torture. He is being tortured with rubber bands snapping on his wrist, and you can see how many rubber bands are on his wrist, yeah. and it's like, all right, each one. Each one, he keeps getting snapped with them to, like, scare him while Bible verses are being, you know, shrieked at him. Um, Fire and brimstone. And that was shocking. That really, I went, whoa. You know, did you do research into those conversion therapy methods in order to make this so authentic looking and feeling? I mean, it, it happens. You know, it, 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 back in the day, it was even more like a electroshock therapy and uh, psychotropic drugs and, of course, torturous activities like that. And that, that rubber band uh, strategy is very common, uh, common even for like drug addiction, like even cigarette smoking. People mm-hmm. on a self-induced that kind of uh, uh, um, those kind of activities that help make an adverse you know, uh, reaction to the body when thinking about or attempting to do something horrible. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, and ultimately, ultimately, what it comes down to is, uh, you know, the, the rates of suicide for these kids who endure that torture as a young person, even though you may endure it and you may say, okay, I'm fixed now and make everybody happy around you so it'll stop, ultimately, deep inside, they know that that's a lie. And so, you know, you'll see kids who have gone through, in the LGBT community especially, who've gone through conversion therapy are like eight times more likely to have suicide attempts, five times more likely to be suffering from, you know, depression, illegal drugs, um, promiscuity, all those things. It really just changes the trajectory of every decision they make in life. Mm-hmm. Well, and... Um, you know that, and that's one of the interesting things here because it's like inside, everybody else, you know, is happy. They may appear happy on the outside, but inside, they are so not happy. And yeah. it that goes with this whole idea of secrets that we see unfolding with Ari as an adult. He's not happy, yeah. and he can't talk about things. 
Um, Ava, she's got a huge, 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 huge secret. Uh, and you really throw us off the track about that one with um, mm-hmm. your timing and your dialogue. Let me tell you. Um, that uh, that's Good. not that's not obvious early on. Good. You know, it takes a little bit because you're very very cagey with your dialogue there about time frames in the past and the present. And if anybody knows math, you know, they'll they'll be guessing. Then you've got right. Max who he's a big unknown variable for a long time here. And then we see his issues because he's tried to commit suicide. He slit his wrist countless times. I think I counted four or five healed scars on each wrist uh, at one point in the film. And to understand what he's been going through his whole life. So all of these secrets come bubbling up while everybody is forced to be together in a confined space. And this is where your production design also comes in to play here, Graham. Because the way you have Anna and Ava and Ari move their stuff from this beautiful house into this small apartment, everything is in boxes. Things are labeled, but everything is piled around them. You're navigating through tiny little pathways. So it's very, very claustrophobic. And we feel that claustrophobia is a perfect metaphor for the claustrophobia that their secrets of what what the secrets are doing to each one of them. Um, So I love the visual that we get with a claustrophobic situation as each person is inside their own claustrophobic mental situation with with their own secrets and it just plays so beautifully and yet they're confined in such a small box that they you know secrets are like you said they're they won't last long (laughs) they're they're gonna come out eventually (laughs) (laughs) and it's and especially when you're confined like that uh and I know quite a few people that have said, while on lockdown, they got paranoid about things. Mm. And we see paranoia setting in, particularly with Ari. Uh, oh, the, yeah. The longer that, that they are in lockdown. And he's having to navigate around two other people whom he doesn't know. And it's quite interesting the way that you have designed that. And I know you shot this yourself. You wrote, directed, you shot it, you edited this. Um, So this had to be a working thing at all times in your mind as you're moving the camera around or not moving it around because there wasn't too much space for you to even navigate. (laughs) Yeah, always had my back in the corner somewhere. Did you, you gave yourself a corner? (laughs) Well, I just, I always say when I, find myself with my camera on and I'm stuck in the corner of a room, I'm finally in the right position. (laughs) (laughs) But you you made this production design work so well for this story. Um, It's perfect for the metaphor 
to carry through visually for what is going on psychologically and emotionally. You know, what kind of challenges, because you're wearing all these hats, what kind of challenges did you face in bringing this to life? Um, you know, not a lot. I, I should, this has actually been one of the more more enjoyable productions we did only because we had a lot of time to, to time is our friend when we're doing indie films like this because mm-hmm. when you jump in you rush and you get it done fast things are gonna you know problems will occur we really had time to plan we had a small team that was completely engaged on all levels and so we really as a small team of about 10 people we were together making a movie during covid and Everyone just wanted to be successful. So it's about picking the right people and just spending a great amount of time planning and then making sure our environment that we're going to work in was healthy. And I think probably my biggest challenge was my own physical challenge because when you are uh, holding a camera, uh, you, you know, you you got that weight on you, which is one one physical stress. But by the way, I probably haven't been thinner in years. So. <laughs> <laughs> You could easily hit a wall or bump into something and trip and fall and, you know, you twist your back or something and you could be down for a couple of days and that would shut everyone down. So you had to really be, everyone had to really watch my back. I had to watch everyone else and together we got it done. But when you're in tight spaces with the camera, there's always room for that. Um, and a little exhausting, but my my greatest pleasure Debbie is, is like when, like an artist, I, I grew up being a painter and a drawer and I can never imagine myself like getting halfway through a painting and then saying, Hey, here, you take it, you know, you take the color of red and you, you do whatever you want with the paint. I, I, I'm, when I get a vision in my head, I write it and then I want to make it and I want to lens it. I want to edit. I want to, I want to make it. And so <laughs> luckily I've done it enough that I can do every, you know, those four processes um, with, a team you know we we make the film together but at least i can feel like i'm painting a picture and i have some control over the nuances like you say the nuances of the piece that tell the story not just the language but through everything that's happening in in sequence in context you know mm-hmm. how how difficult was your casting with this one because i have to say casting. You're ca- yeah. I, I love the casting that you have here. Yeah, that was that was probably the, the most difficult time. My partner Alex and I, we spent a lot of time, went through thousands of uh, applicants across the nation. We kept it open. We said we didn't care what um, what Ari and Ava looked like. So it was a completely wide open casting of all ethnic races, everything. But ultimately, we had to know that we had to have a, you know, as you know the story, a certain criteria had to fall into place. And we were not going to mess around with, you know, having people that at the end didn't make sense visually mm-hmm. and, and uh, idiosyncratically as well. So it just came to be that we found Ava and fell in love with her. And I will say physically... In the script, it said, um, uh, with short, practical hair. And that kind of, she was probably one one only actress that had short, blonde, practical hair. It was very 
perfect. And it's like, oh my God, that's Ava Hare. But I'm not going to jump the gun. But I'm going to put this over on <laughs> the stack over here, and I hope to God she can act. <laughs> and then when they finally got to her, she was she was just Ava. That was case closed. And then from there, then the the you know the puzzle has to start fitting. So then you start looking at okay, who is Ari? If this is Ava, who is John and Max in the in the so that each one has their own lane, and yet the lanes um, you know are in tandem with each other and make sense for the story. Mm-hmm. It went, we went through a lot of people. Well, I, the the main four that you came up with, it is a perfect meld. It really, and by film's end, they all, they feel like they fit perfectly. That nobody else could have done, done these roles. Um, yeah. You know, very impressed. We also gave the actors a lot of time before filming to really um, to really sink into them and make them th- their own, you know, soul. And so they they came in really, um, yeah, really understanding who they were. They spent a lot of time there too. So that kind of confidence gave them probably the the consistency that you um that makes a character believable from from the first day of shooting to the very end as well mm-hmm. yeah every they were each excellent. of them each of the these characters very believable very believable yeah. um even when stories are being made up to hide secrets uh, yeah <laughs> yeah now talk to me about your composer joshua lowell i mm. love the score I love what he did with the score. Um, it's very interesting. It never overpowers, and yet it feels if the emotions that each person is feeling, you feel it in the musical notes. Um, he is a young, young, young father. Uh, I. We actually were introduced um, two films back that I did, a film called I May Regret. I was looking for a composer, and somebody referred me to him. He was just finishing up music college, and um, he did that score. We did it remotely. Um, he was in New York, and we passed files back and forth. And the way we'll do the work is usually we create um, I usually give them some ideas of like what an anthem might be for um, each character. Mm-hmm. We did the same thing with this film. And then we um, then we take the anthems of each character and we try to figure out how they blend together into one, like an overture. And then um, he starts creating, based on the anthems and the overtures, he creates, I'll give him a list of moods or scene titles or different um, subject like adjectives or something that 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 kind of um, underscore a certain scene that we're thinking of from the script and he always gets the script so he knows the story completely and then he'll break it down into into files in strands so like violins will be all separated and cello and bass and a music score uh, like horns or something and then I get all those files and then I, I re-edit them to go over everything. And I use the, the scores as I'm editing. And then I start shaping and cutting mm. and 
duplicating places here and there. So I become the uh, the editor <laughs> of of his composing, and so wow. we work really well together. And it's really fascinating for him to create all this music and then later see how it actually unfolded under the scenes or how I maybe took one of his pieces and then took half of it out and took the violin from another place and put it over this or and even like uh, there's a one scene that you remember, I don't know if you remember when Max is in the bathroom mm-hmm. by himself mm-hmm. I took I took a score that a piece a segment that he wrote and for some reason, it just wasn't working, and then I reversed it, and it worked perfect. Uh, yeah. you got two great Max bathroom scenes, uh, the one being a precursor to the ultimate Max bathroom scene. Um, and it, it just, and I have to say, the precursor scene, some really nifty camera work there with the toilet. <laughs> Uh, very Always the toilet shot. The toilet <laughs> shot, toilet shot, very nifty. Really bl- come comes off. <laughs> We're not going to give away the magic on how you do a toilet shot, but ex- it's very very hard to get inside a toilet. You know that. Uh, yeah, I do, <laughs> I do. But you know, people can yeah, they can. That was a fun. It was a fun day to do that shot. That had to be. That had to be a lot of fun to do that one. And, of course, Noah in that scene, the emotion that he puts forth is just wow. Wow. Yeah. And, the, and it's fleeting. It's very fleeting, too. It's yes. It's the moment that he kind of releases, and then he pulls right back, you know? And like everybody in that story. And it's something similar that we have seen that we've also seen Ari do. Yes. Um, so we have some similarities between these char- among these characters as to the ways that they react to things. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the secrets that they're hiding. Uh, yeah. So I find that I find that structure really fascinating. How you ha- how you have structured this with the characters, with their secrets, with their emotional crises that each is having. Because let's face it, they're all having an emotional crisis. Yeah, they all have secrets that are starting to surface, and they're going to figure out how they're going to navigate through those. Mm-hmm. And and some of them, and nothing's in isolation. That's the whole thing about. Life in, especially in this apartment, you know, you can't can't do it alone, and yet every everything you're going to do is going to affect everybody else in there. Mm-hmm. And I would be remiss not to bring up the great looking food that you have in the in this uh, film. <laughs> did we have well, a COVID? You know, did we have a, a lot. did we have a food stylist for this? Alex, my partner, did um, most of the cooking and the food the food. Um, Food stylist, yeah. I saw. Actually, we all. The, probably one of the more complicated nights was fondue. That's in the, in the film. For we who who knew that if you cook these too long, it gets lumpy. And so we had a, a crisis in the in the eleventh hour trying to make the fondue smooth again. <laughs> and I was going to mention the fondue the fondue scene. 
So you beat me to the punch on that one. <laughs> but yeah, we've got fondue. You've got the the meaty kind of stew happening. I just some really nice looking food. We won't talk about the fondue being lumpy or anything. We'll just talk about the nice looking food. Um, so, <laughs> and was it all edible for everyone? It was. Yeah, I think uh, the Indian food they got to enjoy that in the. Yeah, it's a, it was a little frustrating because um, they got to eat and we were still working. But <laughs> okay, now yeah. now you are the producer, the writer, the director. Could you not have said, "Wait a minute, I need to eat this too"? <laughs> um, Graham, Graham. I think Graham. we had other good food waiting for us as well, and uh, okay. I, will, I will say it: the food looked great, but. Uh, I, I, I imagine the dinner that we had that night was better than that food because it probably wasn't that hot. <laughs> <laughs> like, kudos for them for enjoying it and looking like they enjoyed it. That's for sure. Well, they did look like they were enjoying it, especially the fondue night. I have to say, and the lighting with the twinkle lights. I mean, that was so beautiful. It was so upbeat. But, of course, then you have some darkness encroaching from Ari's direction. Because he, yeah. he kind of isn't liking when people are having a good time. And he's still heavy on his, in the back of his head about, like, what's, what he's going to do. I mean, he's, yeah. Yeah. For, he, I love that scene because you really do see him trying, but it's difficult. And you can tell yeah. that he's, quote unquote, trying. Yeah. Um, and he's failing at it. Uh, but so you know that what, that, Whatever is going on in his head is really weighing on him heavily. Yeah. Uh, now, you have the... Go ahead. No, he and he's just trying to be as honest as possible with Ava. Mm-hmm. The whole process is to try to be... To make sure that what he's doing is from a good place. Mm-hmm. You know? And but, the, but he's also confused as to what is the good place. Right. right. He doesn't know because of what was done to him and how it is weighed. He doesn't know what that good right. place is. To and, trust love. Yeah. You know? I, now, you did this in conjunction with the Trevor Project, did you not? Um, we, we didn't do it in conjunction with, but what we did was um, we reached out to them afterwards to let them know that the film was happening uh, whenever we do a film, like all of our past films, we try to make sure that when we're doing a festival like the one that's coming up on June 30th that the, the dances with the films, when, when the lights come up, I mean, a film's a film. That's great. We love making films, but we love making films because we can start a conversation mm-hmm. afterwards, a conversation that's bigger and more important than the film itself, and that's that's what drives us to do all of our films. So... When the lights come up, the actors and the Q&A and all those things, we can talk about the film. But who can really, you know, someone who has, you know, questions or answers or wants to get involved, wants to make a difference or wants to know more about this issue so they can help with, you know, laws and legislation and things like that. Who are the professionals who can step in and give them resources on a local level that really will make a difference for them? That's our that's our pleasure when we do a film so we start after we're done making a film 
we so we're not all talk. <laughs> we have a film, and then we start reaching out and saying, you know, we know what you do. You do it. You guys are great at this. And for Trevor Project, it's all about really having resources available for mm-hmm. young youth and even adults who um, who have you know issues about depression, who are suicidal, those things that and usually it's around LGBTQ uh, insecurities and 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 uh, the pressures and the backlash of being uh, an LGBTQ community person nowadays. So it's like way they are there for those people and they are an amazing organization. So we wanted to make sure we could point our audience towards them along with uh, other organizations that are, we kind of like uh, the Pied Pipers where you try to get all kinds of groups together that are in alignment with that. Like Born Perfect is another organization that mm-hmm. they focus mostly on legal aspect of, you know, fighting to get laws passed that, Will protect kids like Ari in the future um, in across the nation, so that there are laws that ban conversion therapy for minors. Or Conversion Therapy Dropout Network is another organization that we've pulled together to be a guest speaker at our, our screening, and they are really helping people who like Ari, who were conversion therapy survivors, but still need to talk about, still need therapy, still need to feel like they're. Uh, they're okay and the affirmation just being able to rehash it refile in their head those traumas into a safer place that they can go on through life with mm-hmm. so always bringing these wonderful organizations together on behalf of the film to celebrate the work that they do um only because we've we've started the conversation with our films mm-hmm. Now, the film has its world premiere at Dances with Films on June 30th. Now, will you be there for the Q&A afterwards? Absolutely, yeah. We're, we're all going to be there. And I believe uh, someone from Trevor Project will be there as well and Provision Therapy Dropout Network. We're, and we have some other guests that are coming and a lot of wonderful people from all over who have been following our other films and kind of know the drill and uh, are excited to see this one. And we hope it's a real general audience, too, because it's. I think the story, you know, I mean, it plays well to the, the stripes of people who are, you know, maybe gay or not classic, socially uh, classic heterosexual, but um, it, it speaks to everyone, we hope. You know, mm-hmm. there's a wider audience than just a gay audience. Oh, I think it it definitely speaks to a general audience. Yeah. Definitely speaks to it because of each of these characters and what each is going through and what each is hiding from their past and in their present. And I think yeah. that everybody can relate to at least one, if not more, aspects of this film. You have structured it and written it so well, Graham. That I, it really does have appeal to a wider audience. This is not pigeonholed into an LGBTQ film. By no well, means. This really... Well, it's really good. It's very good to hear that, Debbie, only because we've been kind of under the rock, you know, working in the dark, keeping this quiet, and the, all that we have our focus groups and stuff like that. To, 
to to look for someone like you to watch it and to see it blindly in that sense and to to evaluate just on the film alone and to have that kind of assessment that that brings us great joy because I feel like that that was our goal we really wanted to make sure that um, especially wanted to make sure that like a heterosexual male can watch this story and say I, they, that I, I feel like Ari sometimes I I I know I know where he's coming from and it's nothing it's all in my head and 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 uh, he perhaps is even a little braver than I would ever be mm-hmm. you know he was yeah. brave to do what he did in the story you know, and then, of course, we get into issues with Ava that we can't say what they are because it'll give away a big, uh, a big spoiler. But her big secret is yeah. another whole, another whole, actually, legal can of worms uh, yep. in many respects. So there is so much happening here with each of these individuals that there is something for everyone. There is no yeah. way that an audience member is not going to see this film and be able to relate to at least one of these characters. Yeah. And you know, the sad thing about this is that these issues that we're, you know, touching on and, you know, dousing our characters in, these legal fights, these justice injustices, are only getting worse right now. So yes. it's it's a good time for a film like this. It, it's, we feel it's, it's super relevant and super, uh, yeah, timely, sadly. It's timely. Yeah, I know. And, of course, yeah. a big thing, after the premiere, world premiere on the 30th, because it's at the Chinese theater complex upstairs, afterwards, because I know that they'll rush you out of the theater, uh, to move on to the next thing. They'll only give you X amount of time for the Q&A afterwards. Mm-hmm. I am sure that you will all be out in the lobby area upstairs um, with the comfy seats and the concessions where people will still be able to talk to all of you. Absolutely. And and words out, <laughs> we're going to all go up one more level to Wabo Kalo. It's a little uh, restaurant bar <laughs> out there. I know and, it. And I... I, it's a word out, but you know, I'm just at least as we talk about on radio, and and honestly, the the theater is 450 people. It it might be a absolute disaster. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Oh, it's called Cabo <laughs> Wabo. There have been many, 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 many films over the years uh, with dances, with films, and with other festivals um, where there have been after parties. Or receptions at Cabo Wabo. I have not. I have not heard or seen any train wrecks yet. Well, they, the way it's laid out, there's a great big open area out front. So if yes. you can't get in, we'll be. I'm sure we'll. I don't know if they let you take a little margarita out onto the balcony or not. No. But that would be a perfect little scenario. Otherwise, I'll bring an iced tea. <laughs> that's that's just it. That and and an iced tea looks like. A Long Island iced tea for anybody that needed there to know. For anyone that needed to know that, I'm just promoting Do I delinquency. Need a flask? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, now that that's not a bad idea. And what's very funny is that years ago, um, L.A. Film Festival, which is no more, um, one of the sponsors, I think it was, I think it was Montana, 
was one of the sponsors, and they had a reception at, for the press and, and for filmmakers. And what did I get as a, as a swag gifty? A flask. <laughs> I don't I know. Have, if, I used to, I have one somewhere. I got it for a wedding years ago. I'll have to dig that thing up. You know, everybody needs I mean, one. When you do a premiere, a world premiere, it's the first time, it'll be the first time for us to really see it on the, the big oh. screen. And we're talking Chinese Hollywood, you know, Chinese theaters in Hollywood. It's a massive screen. So if I'm in an editorial era, I'm going to see it. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I will go in there completely sober, I, but I truly will want to talk to y'all afterwards. <laughs> I, I guarantee that. Well, see, now that, now that you have said you're sure that you might see an editorial error, now I'm going to go back and watch this film again before June 30th, and I'm going to email Matt, and I'm going to tell him, let Graham know I found a boo-boo. Well, I can tell you right now, I, I found two. All right. They're little, but, but, but I found them, and I, I'm okay with it because that's, like, that's trivia. That's like... Uh, that's, that's that's a game you play later. Okay. What, what went wrong or where it was, but I will say, when it came to the actors, their continuity about how they um, where they were, how their body was, or hands were, I was I could not have been more thankful for the level of professional training mm-hmm. and concentration they had and how prepared they were coming in because that's when, as a cinematographer and a director. And an editor, you're gonna you're gonna pay somewhere if you're not paying 100% attention. Yep. And that my team, uh, the continuity, the producing, they were all on that as well. But the actors did such a great job, and that you cannot can't be more thankful for that kind of con- consistency. Really lucky. But I'm still gonna have to look now. Now that you've said something, <laughs> I have to look. You know, Graham. Come on, it's Matt will t- Matt will tell you that's it. it's like she's not joking. She really will. Uh, Matt, oh okay. my God, Graham, this is this has been so spectacular getting to speak with you today uh, about oh, my pleasure about Unfix. I sincerely hope that you know we get to chat again on maybe your next project. Um, this has just been wonderful and. I encourage everybody, Dances with Films, June 30th, the world premiere of Unfix. You will not be disappointed. Um, um, you are cordially invited, by the way. Well, thank if you. you haven't got anything going on the 30th, Friday night, 7.15, it's going to be a fun time, and there's a red carpet beforehand as well. And then there's Cabo Wabo. <laughs> You're really pushing Cabo Wabo. Uh, oh my! You, you know you could have done Dave and Buster's. That's huge. It is, oh, I I didn't even know what that was until the other day. I, I we looked at it and go, "What's David and Buster's?" And then we saw another. We saw a TV show, and they were oh. filming in David. But that, it, it just I've never heard of this company before, so I didn't know if it was a. I, I didn't know what it was. I learned about Dave and Buster's about oh. 15 years ago uh, with my youngest nephews uh, when I was visiting them back uh, in Philly. And that was their big thing, going to Dave and Buster's and playing all the games and playing skee-ball and doing this and doing that. Um, So I learned about Dave and Buster's many years ago. 
And I wow. have to say, I am a glutton for Dave and Buster's <laughs> just to play skee ball because I like to pl- I like skee ball. But all right, okay. But uh, they have a lot more floor space than Cabo Wabo. Just so you know. Well, you know, you always want a little, little more snug and cozier than sparse, I guess. But um, I, I, we'll see. We may have to fly, you know, fold the whole thing over there if, if you get too big. <laughs> I think you'll be fine. Yeah. Well, I, if if we have our way, everyone does have good questions, and they're going to want to come up and 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 uh, talk more about the film and. That'll just be a good thing, right? That's exactly right. I think that the lobby at the at the Chinese there, I think that um, you're going to have a lot of people who want to talk to you after the Q and A is ended. I really do. Yeah, I um, whenever we do a film, it's we're always floored at the number of people who come up afterwards and share a personal story about something about the topics that we cover, and it's always heart heartbreaking you know to hear that you know we are touching people's lives but there it is in your face yeah it's it's happening it's still going on it's real it's it's relevant and it's 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 amongst everyone all these issues like you say not only is it there's something in there for everyone but everyone is uh engaged in these issues Mm -hmm. in some way or another to a family member or a loved one or a friend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, it just makes uh, us feel like the film we did was for for a good reason. And all the hard work that getting up to the the premiere and the whole year we have ahead, uh, just festivals and stuff, is it was um, it was purposeful. So uh, it's always a good thing, but it breaks our heart regardless. We hear these stories. Well. People can hear more on June 30th, Friday, June 30th, the world premiere of Unfix. Graham, this has been so wonderful having you on the show. And seriously, open invitation anytime. Well, okay. I'll I'll give you some of my old films. You'll love them, too. (laughs) Well, good, good. And Maybe more little errors, little little editorial things it. you can find in those. Stop it! Stop <laughs> it! You know, and hopefully I will make it over there on the thirtieth, and I will see you in person. That would be a wonderful. We hope to see you, Graham. Thank you so much, and you have a wonderful week, and get ready for your premiere next week. I will, and um, can I can also mention that um, if people want tickets, they can go to the the uh the website for dance with films or they can go to unfixmovie.com and right there there's a button that they can click that takes them right to the same spot and And unfixmovie.com they can also see the trailer and uh learn a little bit more about the actors and what we do as a film company but it's like a one-stop shop if they go to unfixmovie.com i have already been on that site i have checked Ah. it out and it is (laughs) it is one-stop shop and everything on it functions so oh, that's the best thing to hear. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yes, but yes, tickets, you can just Google it, Dances with Films. They've got tickets that you can punch a button there to get to tickets. Um, yep. Or go to Unfix, Unfix Movie or Film? Unfix? Unfixmovie.com. All right. Yeah. Well, here is to a glorious world premiere for you, Graham. Thank you so much, and thanks for having us on the show. Oh, my pleasure, and we'll chat soon.
Okay. Have a good day. Bye-bye. I love enthusiastic filmmakers who turn out a good product, stand by their film, and are really passionate about it. Um, that is definitely Dimitri and Graham Streeter. Two films for Dances with, with Films. Check them out. Go to the Dances with Films website. You can just Google it. You can get tickets. You can see their whole lineup there. There are some other films. Mermaid's Lament uh, is another film that I really like uh, that is going to be screening. So do it. Festivals are always fun. It's fun to fest. All right. That is, yes, we ran over. All the time we have again today is Pam sitting in, in there in the booth, nodding her head up and down and grinning. Um, yeah, okay. So next week we're going to be talking with the voice of Miss Cinder from Elemental. You don't want to miss that one. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.